Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My identity as an Iranian American didn't really come out until college. Before that, I really identified much more as American. Even though I was proud to be Iranian, I definitely did not have the chance to explore that as much because I just didn't have that around me. You know, I didn't have people of my age group to hang out with that ate the food and spoke the language and listened to the music, right? So that didn't really come out for me until I had that community. Hi, I'm Ida Abdelkani, and I'm a modern minority. My identity as an Iranian American, I feel like, didn't really come out until college. I would say before that, I really identified much more as American. I tried to, even though I, I was proud to be Iranian, I definitely did not have the chance to explore that as much because I just didn't have that around me. You know, I didn't have people of my age group, you know, to hang out with that ate the food and spoke the language and listened to the music, right? So that didn't really come out for me until I had that community. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's episode, we're talking to Ida Abdalkani. Chief Catalyzer and Founder of Ability to Engage. Ida's a speaker, a trainer, a marketer, and a pretty funny person. <laughs> Very funny person. She's also a homecoming queen. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like that should be a disqualification. You don't get to come on the podcast if you're a homecoming <laughs> queen. No. And if that were, once you meet her, you're, you're going to understand that she's, again, someone who's just really thoughtful and, and has a pretty strong point of view based on some pretty interesting experiences. Because being homecoming queen was not an assumption, you know? Yeah. And she was, is it called elected, nominated, voted, won? I don't know how that stuff works. She was I'm awarded not. the title of, <laughs> I don't know either, of homecoming queen right after September 11th. As someone of Arab descent. As someone right. of Arab descent. And as she Wait, was I don't know telling, if that's accurate. I don't know if Iranians are Arab. Oh, man. I'm like totally Middle Eastern descent. Experience. Middle Eastern descent. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that that happened at that moment in time when the world felt like it was turned upside down and it could have gone the other way. Like she actually talks about how she almost withdrew her nomination or whatever the equivalent is in Homecoming Queenland. We're making it sound like it's not important, Raman, by saying it that way. It is. No, it is. Like, here's the thing. This is where I learn on the show. Like, I, Ida, you're my friend. So sorry in advance. No, I were one of my negative flaws is I tend to be dismissive on first information, right? And 
actually I don't remember if I knew that about her. And she said that, and I genuinely like her, but I was like, really? Come on. But the importance to her story, I, I think it really is because I re- lately I've become a glasses half empty kind of person. I think that's obvious. And you, I kind of need to be more glasses half full because I have Yes, you do for my sake but, anyway. <laughs> um, no, but like she chooses that the glass is half full. And I want optimists, but I also want realists. And I think you can be both. And I think Ida is both because like me, she grew up with a funny name and parents from overseas and a very middle of the country, ruralish, suburbanish kind of environment and thrived. She discovered her own identity. She leaned harder into her Iranian identity in college than I did. Yeah. My Indian identity. But she didn't go marry an Iranian guy, you know, but she, she learned the language. She, she wanted to know the culture. Yeah. And, and I really think that shaped her point of view on how she looks at people and how she relates to people. Yeah. She also talks a lot about how outwardly she looks like she's white. And so that having that almost ability to disconnect completely where unless she were to have mentioned it, that it wouldn't be immediately obvious was also kind of an interesting way for me to understand where she was coming from, you know, and a lot of a lot of her experiences as well, which is very different from my own personal experience because I definitely don't look anything but Chinese. And well, that's not true. Sometimes I get mistaken for Southeast Asian, but pretty much in the same, you know, same region. Not like someone would look at me and think I'm from Spain or same, Greece. same but different. Same, same, same but different. Yeah, same, same but different. And so kind of like, and you probably encountered this too. I don't know, but I see the world outside of my own eyes. So I'm not looking at the world through a filter of I am like, I look one certain way or I am one certain way. I just kind of see everybody outside of me. And I'm aware that when they look at me, they're looking at someone who's Asian. But if I didn't look Asian and still culturally were Asian, I do wonder if people would respond to me differently, you know? So just kind of fascinating to have heard about her, her coming full circle with growing up being one of the only Middle Eastern families where she was, and then kind of finding her culture later on in her, I guess, in her early adulthood, and then sort of coming full circle to where she is today. Yeah. And you know, the other thing I'm super jealous about Ida, she's been to more countries than me, like twice as many. (laughs) Yes, we did talk about that too. (laughs) I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with our friend Ida. Ida, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with both of you today. Yeah. So Ida, a lot of people, they know the marketer, speaker, trainer, TEDx person, but they might not know who you were before all that happened. Can you you tell us something from your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a very small town called Lima, Ohio. I say it stands for lost in middle America. It literally was the size (laughs) of Ohio State when I went to college. Campus was about the size of the city that I grew up in. So a lot of people don't realize, I think, since I've traveled the world and I'm somebody who's very interested in, I think, what's going on in the world and being involved in conversations about culture, about ethnicity, about world events, and When I tell them that I'm from Lima, Ohio, that in and of itself is a huge surprise for people because what they think about is 
the cornfields and they ask me if I've ever gone cow tipping and you get those types of images that come to mind. So I think that in itself has always been something I've had to explain to people and, and how that affected me. Yeah, it's funny. I have a lot of that when I tell people I'm from Alabama, even though I grew up in suburban suburbs, right? Just shopping malls and everything. Lima's, I, there's a plant, there's a, a factory there, right? And yes. it's a factory town. It is, yes. And BP was the big the big business that was there for a time. They had a refinery and they had a chemical plant. And then they also had some things for the army at one point. And it was a big railroad town. So back in the day, it was really an industrial town and used to be a booming city because of that. But that is all long since gone. Yeah. So I got to ask another question. And I'm sure you've had this asked of you before. Where are you from? That is such an easy question for a lot of people, but a complex one for me. I am a Canadian-American Iranian. So I was born in Canada, and a lot of people also don't know that, I think, since I grew up in the U.S. since I was seven years old. But I am a proud Canadian, also a proud American, having spent, you know, grades one through 12 in college, right, and all of my adult life here in the U.S., but also Iranian because that's my ethnicity and that's what I grew up with in my household was speaking Farsi and eating Persian food and listening to Persian music. So in a way, I have a bit of not just a dual identity, but a triple identity. And I have a fun fact about you that you were the first Middle Eastern homecoming queen at Ohio State. Tell us about that. (laughs) You've done your research. Yeah. So that's an interesting story. It was actually right after 9-11. So it was back in 2001 and I was on homecoming court at Ohio State and they choose the court the year before. So they choose it the spring before the actual election, so to speak, or the voting, I guess, for, for homecoming king and queen. That happens in the fall when everybody's back on campus. And so I knew I was on court the year before. And then coming back to school in the fall, at that time, we were on the quarter system. We weren't yet on semesters. And so we started late in September for school. And so 9-11 happened right before we were on campus. I was super, super nervous about going back to campus, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. I happened to be in Lima when 9-11 happened. And that Next day, I actually was going to buy supplies for school. And I remember being at the store and I was checking out, give my credit card to the cashier. And she says, where are you from? Reading my name, right? And it was just a very different tone than I'd experienced. I'd certainly had my fair share of of things. Had you been to that store before? Yes. Yeah. I didn't know the cashier though. I'd been to to that store before. But yeah, I mean, I'd never had anybody ask me where I was from based on my name right? She Mm -hmm. just looked at my name. And so I was like, oh, wow, things are going to be really different. And so then that made me really nervous about going back to campus because they were posting posters all over campus about homecoming court. And my name with my picture was going to be right there on all these posters. And so I was really, really nervous about backlash, about people saying things to me about being Middle Eastern and my name and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want my name out there. So I actually considered asking them, asking OSU if I could not be on court. (laughs) Like, could I like take myself off of court somehow? I didn't know how that would work, but I was that nervous. And my dad told me, he said, he reminded me, he was like, look, Lima is a small town. When you go to OSU, it's a very diverse community. 
And there's people there that are like-minded. It's a different age group, all that stuff. So just go to campus and see. And as soon as I got to campus, I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel at all like I had to worry about who I was and where I was from. And so I decided I didn't need to ask, you know, about getting off court if that was even possible. And lo and behold, I guess it's a good thing I didn't because I ended up winning Homecoming Queen. And it was just an amazing experience. It literally felt like I was getting a hug yeah. from the community. I was on the field. They announced it completely taken aback and surprised because knowing the background Mm -hmm. of where I was at with it, I was just happy to not have people questioning who I was. I never dreamed that I could actually win Homecoming Queen. So I was completely shocked. And it was just an amazing experience because I think that for as many negative interactions that a lot of us have as minorities, there are many more good-hearted and embracing actions from our community. And that was a really good reminder to me that I'm going to have both, but I need to remember about the good qualities of people and the ability to be embraced by our community. That's a fantastic story. I know, Raman, you've talked a little bit about your own experiences around 9-11 and just some of the tensions that you've experienced or just even being asked certain things at airports and other things, right? Yeah. I mean... And I feel like we have to preface every episode going forward, which I have no problem doing. We're recording this in, what is it, the second week of June. It's pretty obvious what's going on in America right now. So I, when I talk about my experiences, and my wife and I were talking about this this morning. My wife's Chinese-American, and we're just unpacking some of the other stuff going on in the world. The model minority plight, so to speak, right, is very different from the African-American plight, the gay American plight, et cetera. And that being said, yeah, I mean, I think the moment brown, the bad moment brown people had, and there have been worse moments to be very clear, but the one in our modern history was 9-11, right? Because all of a sudden you go from being a model minority to a potential terrorist and I start shaving my beard more often, et cetera. I had a, a Muslim friend in college. She was Pakistani. And she had started wearing her hijab that year, actually. Mm. And she was just too afraid to like leave her dorm room because people were dragging around effigies of bin Laden on campus, right? And it's all the same, honestly. It's kind of like her fear. They're just going to view me as one of them, even though she is from Pakistan. And I bring that up because I do feel Chinese Americans have been kind of facing a little bit of that right now in a coronavirus world. Yes. Yeah, but but it's two weeks later, right? It's to kind of what the situation on the ground is now. So I guess I say all of that, yeah, I experienced some shit, but it wasn't as bad for me either, similar to Ida. Ida, we're kind of similar. Like we're a little bit outgoing with our personalities, probably why we wound up doing the kind of work we did. So we were kind of folks about campus, right? I was a known entity. I was the head of the honors program. I was an engineering ambassador. I was, I had a couple of newsletters on campus that I did. And so people knew me. They didn't know my Pakistani friend because she wasn't an outgoing extroverted or forced extroverted kind of person. And that worked to my advantage as a bit of a shield to some of that. But that shield evaporated when I went to airports. That shield evaporated when I went to my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, where I grew up completely and kind of had those kind of experiences you had, Ida, in Lima. And to this day, I sometimes have it when I go back home. I'm like, I grew up here. Come on. I used to shop at this comic book store. Yeah, And to me, I, I guess what I'd say is, my lesson out of it is like, no one's safe. You think you might have this veneer of protection. And I, I know you're being more optimistic here and that's okay. <laughs> I'm in like a really 
I don't want to say raw state. Like I've kind of reconciled my feelings on what's going on and what I need to do. But if anyone thinks, I don't know, I'm just not an optimist about it. I think we're only two bad scenarios away from people not being polite. And had you not been a senior at OSU or a junior at OSU, had you been do you think it would have been, I, let me ask you that, Ida. Do you think it would have been different if you weren't as outgoing a person? I guess you wouldn't have been on homecoming court, right? You wouldn't have made it to that level. But what would have happened if you were just an, a quiet Iranian-American girl at OSU? Yeah, I, personally, as it relates to homecoming, I don't think it would have made a difference. I think because it just was so raw at that point, right? I mean, homecoming, the actual game where they announce court in King and Queen I believe was only three weeks after. And so voting was a week after 9-11. I mean, it was so raw in people's head, you know, in people's minds and hearts, I think that I don't think it would have made a difference if I was an extrovert or an introvert. Like, I think people were just going to judge people from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. And I luckily didn't have that at OSU. Now, Something that's interesting, though, just to show you a juxtaposition of these worlds, while I am positive and I do believe that people are inherently good and I believe we're all more alike than we are different, and that's something that most people can rally around. I, I only agree to half of that premise, Ida. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we'll come back to that. We'll go back to that. But the juxtaposition of this is that the day that I won Homecoming Queen, my brother had come in to town for the event and everything. And me and him, and he had brought his roommate with him, who was who was much darker skinned than us, let's say. So my brother is darker skinned than me, and his friend is darker skinned than him. And so the three of us were walking around after homecoming at night on the main street there, High Street. And a truck went by and just yelled out the window. There were two white guys that yelled out the window, Go home, you fucking... Oh, sorry. Can I say... Yeah. Definitely. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Totally. You yeah, F- you can. You effing... Say whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> and it was incredibly jarring, right? I mean, it's hurtful, obviously. You're minding your own business, just walking to get something to eat. You just won Homecoming Queen, right? Right, right. So it was, it was mind-boggling because it was like I had just felt this enormous embrace of the community and literally maybe five hours later walking down the street and have this derogatory stuff yelled at us. Anyways, that's all back to the point that I don't think any of us are safe, just like you were saying. I don't think that me being extroverted would have made a difference. I think the difference, at least in my interactions with people, is that it just comes down to empathy. Whether an introvert or an extrovert I think it's really just about that connection and people knowing who you are as a human being. And that helps melt a lot of those. Yeah, but, but I do think I, I do think that's not to pick on you, but to pick on that assumption is being extroverted allows people to know you more, right? If you're an introvert, you don't go out of your way for people. To, and to be clear, an introvert wouldn't run for homecoming court or or win probably, right? Because it's how well people like you and how qualified you are for the role. You don't see a lot of introverts running for these things. I do think to kind of chat, I think we all are created equal to a degree. We're not treated equal, but we all have similar hopes, dreams, and desires, right? As human beings on this planet or as Americans or as Canadians or whatever. I'm not a religious person, but when I read Paradise Lost, the premise that man is of sin really resonated with me because I do believe, and this is where I'm starting to realize I'm a pessimist again after 20 years of being an optimist. I think left to their own devices, man or woman will make the wrong choice. And it is 
it is a conscious effort to make the right choice, right? Because <laughs> like our base instinct, our lizard brain is to be tribal, is to say, I'm better than you. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I believe all people are like that. I just think at our core, our instinct does want us to protect our own and to be selfish. And I think that's the danger. It's versus nurturing a community, even though we survive better. The reason civilization works, as we were talking with our other guest, Jay, right, is because like we rebel against nature to a degree. And we do form communities. We do form bonds. We don't form packs, so to speak. Anyway, so I just think the guys driving that truck were being more real to themselves. Maybe not right for the mm-hmm. world. And I, I just see that continue to go on. Right, right now. I don't know. Sorry, I'm, you got no. me on a bad day. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting perspective, right? To think about, are they actually being more true to themselves, right? To go ahead and yell out whatever they're feeling in that moment. I do believe that I, they, they know that physiologically we pass through, speaking about the reptilian brain, right? We pass through anger, sadness, happiness, all the emotions physiologically pass through our system in about 90 seconds. That's the reptilian part of the brain. But after that, we have a choice. So if people are acting within those first 90 seconds, then, then yeah, I mean, like you said, the kind of base level and the sinister pieces of us, I think can come out and they're, I think within all of us. Right. But the idea is I think for all of us to work harder on catching ourselves in those moments, giving ourselves the time to process so that we can make a choice that's in the right direction for not just ourselves, but for those around us. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I guess I, I want to back up a little bit more about to your, to your parents' story, because I don't know a lot of Iranian Americans or Iranian Canadians, so to speak. People left in different waves at different times for different reasons. And when did your parents leave? Why did they leave? Like, yeah. That's a great question. My parents, they did not leave thinking that they were leaving their country and never coming back. So their story is interesting in that my dad was getting his PhD. And so it was a program through his university that he was going to come to Canada to finish his PhD. So when they left, so my brother was actually born in Iran. And my mom was not pregnant with me yet. So they come they come to Canada for my dad's PhD, you know, with, with my brother with them. And when they left Iran, they said bye to their families for just a few years. They left their house. They left their car, their belongings. Everything was there intact for them to come back when my dad was done with his PhD. But this was right before the revolution. And so then the revolution started in 1979 and, you know, it became a situation where it wasn't the same country to go back to. So they ended up staying. So then I ended up being born in Canada and they made a life for themselves. But it's incredibly hard for me to imagine as, as I get older, I recognize more and more and appreciate how much my parents had to go through to create a life for us because they had literally zero support. They ended up in a country without anybody, right? Without any family members. They didn't have money, right? They'd left all their stuff in Iran. They didn't ever see that stuff again. They never got to go back. My dad literally has never seen one of his brothers again. He hasn't seen one of his brothers for 40 years. So they had an incredibly, you know, difficult Are they, sorry, way of question. coming here. 
Yeah. Are they are they naturalized Americans? Because Canadians yes. can go back, right? Oh, okay, because they're naturalized then. Yeah. That's why you can't yeah, go yeah. back. Yep. And so they had a very so there's pros and cons to it, right? It's on one side you can look at it and say, well, I guess guess it's good that maybe they weren't there during the revolution, right? Like it worked out <laughs> the way it did that he had the chance to finish getting his degree and finish his PhD and all that stuff. At the same time, what a way to leave, right? You're saying goodbye for what you think is a temporary thing, which then becomes a permanent thing. And they've now been outside of Iran longer than they ever were in Iran. So it's just for them, I have, like I said, as I've gotten older and I've traveled around the world and I've realized how difficult it can be just simply to travel as a tourist in other countries where you don't know the culture and the language and you don't have a community, much less start a life there with two young kids and very little income. So they made their way for themselves and then they found themselves in the U.S. because my parents really wanted to come to the U.S. for our education. And so my dad worked on getting a job in the U.S. and that's how we ended up in Ohio. Yeah, having backpacked around the Middle East quite a bit, and probably not as much as you because Enviously, your country count is almost twice mine. <laughs> Iran has always been a country I have wanted to go to, not as an American, but as just a world traveler. And I guess a lot of Americans have this view of Iran as, and it's kind of like Syria. When I, when I went to Syria before the Arab Spring, it's, oh, it's a dangerous terrorist laden place. Don't go. Oh my God. And you go there and the people are fine. Some of the nicest people in the world, right? Middle Eastern culture is a very warm and inviting culture. And I know there are differences between Lebanon and Iran and Iraq and so on and so forth. But there's a cultural norm of almost welcoming you into someone's house, right? And I guess as someone who's been always from the outside in, how would you describe Iranian culture? And, And kind of the same way I experienced my Indian culture comes from like aunties and uncles, dinner parties on the weekends. Sharon's comes from, I'm guessing dim sum. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Chinese school. Chinese Uh, weddings, Chinese school. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) As our first Iranian guest, so to speak. I mean, how would you kind of encapsulate some of the specifics of that Iranian culture that you did get in Canada and in the US? Well, so I will say that definitely growing up in small town Ohio made it incredibly difficult. I, <laughs> not a big Iranian American association. Yeah, not, not a big, not a big population. Now the ones, the Iranian Americans that were there, we were certainly friends with them. I knew that we knew all of them and yep, my parents yep. would I, have, uh, <laughs> I know that, I know that feeling. <laughs> my parents would have dinner parties and whatnot. So I got to, obviously got to experience the culture and An interesting thing, too, that I've appreciated, again, as I've gotten older, is that I'm fluent in Farsi, though growing up, I never took classes. So just, it was the mother tongue at home? Your mom and dad spoke it? Exactly. My mom and dad spoke it at home, and they were very careful, too, actually. They would speak English to me and my brother, because they were concerned about my brother and I being able to understand things in school when we first started, right? They wanted to try to prepare us as much for education as possible. And so they would speak to us in English, but they would speak to each other in Farsi. And so just by being around that, me and my brother both learned Farsi. We're both fluent, but there were no classes in small town Ohio where I could go learn officially, right? So my grammar wasn't great and I didn't know how to read or write at all. And so I actually didn't even learn that until I went to college. And while I was getting my MBA at Ohio State, they have classes, they have a whole Persian language program. So I took classes. In addition to my MBA, I just took Persian classes there on the side. And that's when I learned how to read and write. So it wasn't until my 20s 
that I learned how to read and write. But I will say growing up, I was fluent. Growing up, I knew about our music. I knew about the food through these dinner parties. And my mom always cooked Persian food at home. So it was rare that we would have lasagna or spaghetti or something like that. You know, it was pretty much 90% of the time it was Persian food. So I got, I got a lot of my culture, honestly, just through being at home and then through the interactions we had with some of those other Iranian American families in the community. Did your parents ever do this? Sharon, you as well. What? You'd be at like a pizza restaurant and the whole family, mom, dad, siblings, right? And the waiter would come by and do something and then your parents would just start speaking in insert foreign language, yeah. like the secret language at the restaurant to be like, they're totally ripping us oh, off. Yeah. Or- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or even it's funny hearing you speak Ida because my parents would speak Chinese to us when we were in trouble sometimes. Like that's when I knew I was really That's in all the Chinese you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know shut up and sit down in Hindi like really well. <laughs> it's like once the Chinese came out, you knew something, something bad was about to happen. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I think my parents, I don't really remember them doing it at restaurants and stuff. But I just I do remember when we'd go to bigger cities, right? If we went on vacation to LA or New York City or Chicago, mm-hmm. where there's more Iranians, I do remember my parents would be like, okay, be careful what you say. Because <laughs> <laughs> other people are listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like other people can understand now. So that was kind of it was more like in a joking sense, right? But it is it, it's interesting to think of it as this secret language sometimes because the I'll tell you guys a personal story. When I was in college, I ended up dating a Persian guy. And Oh, I bet mom and dad were so excited about that. (laughs) Well let's say, yeah. Well that's another story for another day. But what was really great for me was that that was my first chance to be able to really use the language in what I would call an Iranian American way. Right. Because when I was living at home and it was with my parents, like I only knew like their language and the words they would say, which is very different, right? An older perspective on the language. And just if you think about any parent child relationship, the vernacular used and stuff like that, right? Versus the guy that I was dating, you know we were able to talk at like a 20 something level. Right. And like, I learned a different vocabulary and different words and it actually got me much more comfortable speaking because I was always pretty nervous to speak before that because I didn't practice speaking a lot. You know, most of my intake of the language was auditory from listening to my parents, you know, speak, but I would respond in English, you know, I would never respond in in Persian. And so It wasn't until college when I actually really started using the language, you know, so for me, I say that like my identity as an Iranian American, I feel like didn't really come out until college. I would say before that I really identified much more as American. I tried to, even though I I was proud to be Iranian, I definitely did not have the chance to explore that as much because I just didn't have that around me. You know, I didn't have people of my age group, you know, to hang out with that, ate the food and spoke the language and listened to the music, right? So that didn't really come out for me until I had that community. That's great. So did you, did you ever feel like you had to do things to fit in when you were growing up? hundred percent. Yeah, that's a, (laughs) that's so spot on. I don't know if, if you had to do that as well, but 100% 100% when it's I kind of a requirement up. to be on the show. You know? yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally I had to grow up 
trying to fit in, trying to be, I'll say, as white as possible. You what know? did you do? What did you do to be as white or as American as possible? I remember one one thing in particular was that I went to these Christian Bible studies with my friends. Wow. You know, and it Pretty was woke. That is really woke, Ida. (laughs) You know, for me back then, I was just, I was, well, I've always been very curious, but you know, my friends, like Bible study was a big thing to them, you know, and they had this whole community around it and they would go on these trips together and all of that. And so, you know, some of my best friends were very involved in that. And so I asked them one time, like, Hey, can I come to one of your meetings? And they're like, yeah, you know, and when I told my parents, they're like, huh? what are you doing? You know, but they were, luckily they were very open to it. They're like, you know what? Like they're very spiritual. They believe in God. They're like, you know what? It's good to go and learn. And so I went, I went to some of their group meetings and went on a field trip with them and everything. And I wouldn't say at the time I was not at all trying to fit in, but looking back on it, it's like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, like what I was trying to do was I was trying to find ways to connect with my friends. I was trying to find ways to do things where I could be involved because they wouldn't necessarily think of me for those things. Right. So it was like, I'm friends with these group of people and yes, I'll be invited to parties or we might go out shopping or whatever back then. Right. But then there was this whole other side of them that they never opened up to me because I was different. And so it was like my way of trying to say, hey, you don't have to exclude me. I'm open. I want to learn more about your way of living. And I think in large part growing up, because I was one of the only non-white people in my school, I very much grew up feeling like I needed to fit in Yeah, and that I couldn't embrace my Persian side. Yeah. Did they... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go, Sharon. I was just going to ask if any of your friends ever tried to learn more about your Persian background in the same way. Yeah, I didn't think so, but I was hoping <laughs> I mean, you would have. You've you've had such great optimistic stories. Like I kind of expected you to be like, yeah. And so the whole school decided to <laughs> crown June first as <laughs> get to know your Persian friend. Get day, to know your no. Persian friend day exactly. I was always kind of secretly ashamed of the the secret Indian life we had at home, the food, the dinner parties, the temple with the weird gods, right? The only thing people really knew is I was Indian and my dad had an accent, right? That was kind of it. So I kind of hid that with the exception of a a couple of friends, our next door neighbors and things like that. My mom's best friend is a black lady, et cetera, who would come over and knew all about it. We would cook with them. But it wasn't until college where I went to University of Alabama, a couple hours north of where my folks live. And in the town I'm in, this big Shakespeare theater. So we have an honors program trip to the Shakespeare theater. And my mom was insistent on having all of my friends over for an Indian dinner, right? And I was like, oh, I don't. Because it was like, by this point, I'm almost 20. And I'm just so, I've, I've hidden this secret Indian life of mine away. And they all came over and mom made the food. And mom was charming as always, as was dad. And then they started playing the music and people started dancing. And I was like, ah, cringing, right? (laughs) And everyone was cool with it. To this day, some of those friends will be like, that was one of the best nights of my life, right? And it's just this fear of sharing. I wish I'd gotten over it sooner because I wonder how much different my life or my interaction would have been, right? Yeah. But I think all teens are afraid. Totally. I I 100% agree. I I don't remember being ashamed of our food, but I do remember asking my mom and my dad all the time to make more American food. 
<laughs> like, can I yeah. have some more mac and cheese? And like, I just, it was one of those things where I, I think back then I was just tired of having the same kind of food all the time. You know? Five nights a week, right? right, yeah. right? Whereas now, oh my God, I mean, I love it whenever I see my parents. It's like I asked my mom to cook me five different things that I can pack and take home with me. <laughs> now I really miss it. But yeah, I mean, I do remember asking a lot more for food. I do remember, and it pains me to say it now, again, as you get older and more mature, I do remember when I was younger being a little bit embarrassed that my dad had an accent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it was something that people made fun of. That was something that people would say. And I never really thought about it when you grow up with it. Well, you can't hear it. You can't hear exactly. it you until don't your hear friends it. point it out to you. Yeah. Exactly. And so to me, it was absolutely a non-issue. But then like when some friends made fun of it when I'm growing up, then it was okay. Then, then you start hearing it and then you start noticing it. But again, now with age and maturity, it's like I look back at that and I'm like, well, how much courage does it take to be able to speak another language, right? That's not your your mother tongue. It's incredibly difficult. And to be fluent. I mean, my parents are completely fluent in every single way, right? My dad's teaching mathematics in another language. Right. That's not something to be made fun of. That's something to applaud and to be inspired by. So I have a completely different perspective. I wish I could go back and tell my seven-year-old self that and, and maybe I would have had a very different feeling back then. Every culture in America kind of has that one thing that either they're made fun of for or they can point back to, right? This is a weird way of saying. So doctors, the most accurate doctor show is Scrubs, right? Because it shows the absurdity of the culture of medicine, right? And the sheer exhaustion of it. And I never knew what that was for Indian people. I mean, there were a couple movies or books like The Namesake or whatever you could point to people. This new show, Never Have I Ever on Netflix, I would argue is the most accurate show about the Indian American experience. And I'm going to guess Sharon's just going to say the Joy Luck Club. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Sharon. <laughs> Ida, what is that for Iranians in this country or in Canada or in the West? It doesn't have to be a show. It can be anything. Like if you had to say, oh my God, if you want to understand my experience, here, read this, watch this. Well, I, I would say, I mean, this is an extreme, but it helps people understand our culture. Shaws of Sunset. It's a Bravo, yeah, it's a Bravo show about some wealthy Iranian Americans growing up in LA and now they're in their 30s and 40s and kind of follows this group of friends around. So it's, while it might not be at all showing the spectrum of Iranian Americans, it's a very It's not very deep, no. Yeah, right. And it's a a very focused (laughs) group that they're looking at, right? But the good thing is I've had so many friends now because of that show say hello to me in Farsi because they watch the show. So it's just that idea of, I think, getting exposed to the culture and that show has been able to create that on a more massive scale so that people understand a little bit. Like they'll say to me like, oh, you know, why? like if I'm wearing silver jewelry, I thought Persians like gold because everybody in that show wears gold. (laughs) (laughs) At least starts the conversation, right? So I appreciate it from that point of view that it at least even though there are some things in there that I would say are very stereotypical and again, not representative of of the culture in in its entirety, but that's life, right? That's any show, like you said, right? Jersey Shore and all these things, right? You take a microcosm. That is is what people are like in New Jersey. Yeah, (laughs) right. I'll put that on the record. (laughs) But yeah, it started some conversations. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Did you ever see when Jon Stewart was running The Daily Show, Jason Jones did like a week in Iran? Did you ever watch that? I did that? not. Mm-mm. 
Yeah, I highly recommend. I mean, to me, that was, I want to say that was before I did my Middle East backpacking, but I was like, this place isn't scary. It's because what he's trying to do is like penetrate the media narrative around the Middle East. I mean, he literally just goes and has dinner with people and just kind of show the society, sure, under the regime, but these are just people like you and me, right, who have kids, et cetera. And ironically, what happened was Jason Jones did that. And he, for one of like the skits they did, he was pretending he was a CIA op, even though he wasn't, like to interview some journalist. And that journalist wound up getting like kidnapped. And then John Stewart made a movie about that journalist, not Jason Jones, but Rosewater. Highly, one, I'd recommend watching the whole five days in Iran thing. I'm sure it's online, but then Rosewater, phenomenal movie. Wow. Wait, so did you actually, when you were backpacking, did you go to Iran? No, no. So Syria or Jordan, then Syria, and then just Dubai to, to see some friends who were expats over there. But the plan was to go back, right? Iran, Israel, Egypt, a few others, maybe even Yemen. But then I think it was three months after we got back in the country, Arab Spring. And then I got engaged and my wife was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, that's the dumbass trip you can do with your friends before you're engaged. (laughs) But you've been to many other amazing places, Roman. No, Sharon. So hang on. I just been to more. I know. I feel like the third or fourth time. I have heard that. Yeah. How did that happen, Ida? 100? Come on. Yeah. I'm like just at 50. 100 countries? 100 countries, <laughs> yeah. Ida? Wow. I think it's actually, it's it's over that now, but- Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but it slowed down. It slowed down because I had my backpacking trip, which helped me see many places in, in a period of time. But what happened was I resigned from my corporate job and I realized I you know didn't have- really anything holding me to Ohio, right? I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a job because I just quit. So I was like, well, what am I going to do with my time? And I decided to go backpacking. It was one of those things where for some reason, I always thought that I would go backpacking when I retired as if that would be like the best time. And I thought, you know what? Who knows if I'm even going to live that long? Like, I'm just going to do it. So I bought a one-way ticket I started in Europe and I started backpacking and it was during the Arab Spring. So when I was in the Middle East backpacking, it was in the, it was just like in the midst of all that stuff. So there were some countries that I couldn't go to, like Syria was a place I really wanted to go to and I I did not get to go. But yeah, that's been how I've been able to see so many countries is that I had about eight months around the world. And so that accounted for, for a large majority of those countries that I saw. But have you been on all seven continents? I've not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> Sorry. My ego needed that. And I have a question no, no, for, the, for the two of you. Do you guys, do you start off the year planning how many countries you want to hit that year? How does this work? Because I feel like I don't know if I'm ever going to get to a hundred in my lifetime. I don't have a list. I think no. Roman, you're much more. Organized. I have a spreadsheet. No, I have a spreadsheet. Once, <laughs> I, once I start to want to Of course know, you have a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. No, it's less. It just kind of happened. My travel bug as a kid, it was like England and India and Canada and Mexico. And that was about it, right? England and India for family, Canada and Mexico because they're there and dad had conferences there. And then before the corporate job that gave me money, it was, oh, I have a friend teaching English in Japan. Oh, this was fun sleeping on his floor and going there. And then, oh, I'm at work and I have coworkers in Venezuela and they'll let me crash with their in-laws over the holidays while I work out of the office there. And I just slowly started picking it up. And then you get the overseas assignment, or then you study abroad and a couple of those things. And to your point, then next thing you know, my partner, my wife, she has the same kind of curiosity of wanting to get into a culture. So we would pick 
not let's get let's knock out six countries in a year, but we would take two vacations where we didn't go to a luxury resort. We're like, okay, why don't we get the cheap flight, the cheap jet flu flight into Costa Rica and take a bus to Nicaragua while we're there because we hear the island there is pretty interesting. So we would chain together a few things. But I made actually my goal for a while that the country count had to be above my age. But and I have a nice little buffer. But now that we have a kid, I hate to say it's not worth it because it's like she's not going to remember it if I take her on these trips. And it's kind of a pain to travel with the kid. <laughs> and so I'd rather like my first trip overseas must have been four to England to see family and then six to India to see family. Right. But I have this regret that I don't have family there. It's a distant family. That's where my parents' hmm. family. Yeah. And my wife's not been to India. I've been to China with her parents and they never want to go back to China with me now after that. <laughs> But like, I feel like there's um, like a whole story behind that, that one that, for that's a different, another podcast a different episode. Series. Yeah. Different podcast series. <laughs> but you don't make a list. You just have places you want to see. Iran is so far up my list. And Ida, I feel like haven't bugged you enough about the culture in our friendship that because I'm obsessed and I want to go just like I want to go to Pakistan and I there, there are parts of Africa that I want to see. I don't know. We're, we're rambling about travel and this is not what that show's about. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think I can at least say this from my perspective is that it was my traveling around the world, which didn't happen until my late twenties that I gained an appreciation for how much more alike we are. I had started to get that appreciation already in the U S amongst Americans but then going to other countries where I couldn't speak the language, but yet I still was able to communicate, right? I was able to get around with my facial expressions and my hands, right? I remember one time I broke down and I just started bawling on a train because I was about three or four months into my trip and I just could not get around. Nope. Yeah, I hit a wall. Nobody would help me. I ended up missing the train twice standing on the platform <laughs> for two hours because nobody would help me. And I have these heavy backpacks with me. Finally, when I get on the train, I just broke down. I felt so alone. And this woman, she couldn't speak the language. She had no idea what had happened to me, but she reached out from across the aisle and put her hand on my knee and just tapped my knee, that gesture of it's going to be okay. And it meant so much to me in that moment. And it really is the travel, I think, at least for me personally, where it strengthened my appreciation and understanding for how across different cultures, across different socioeconomic backgrounds, when you peel away all of that, we are all just big puddles of love <laughs> that want, that just want to be understood. And we create all these shields to protect ourselves as we go through life because of people yelling derogatory things to us or telling us that we're less than. And so we believe that we have to maybe distance ourselves from people in different communities. But I've come to learn as I've gotten older, that's all really just a coping mechanism. Because deep down, when you peel all of that away, we all just really want to connect and, and be loved and share love. Yeah. So speaking of love, you mentioned you had a boyfriend in college who was Farsi. Yep. But I believe you married someone quite different. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. So, also well, engaged. Yeah. Oh, engaged. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank, I've you, thank already, you. I already, I already have you guys walking down the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's Indian American. And how did your how did your parents respond to that? They they were great. You know, they've always been very open to different cultures. To them, the most important thing is just do two people get along. So they don't worry about. I guess some of the cultural things or religion and all that kind of stuff is just, hey, do you guys treat each other well and do you get along? Interestingly, 
we actually had more issues from his side of the family <laughs> than the other way around. And it was yeah. just, I, I want to ask, ask that. Were you raised Muslim? I was not. No. Okay. So I say that I'm- And is he Hindu? And I mean, that's what I'm, where I was trying to go is Iranian, Indian. Is there the, the Hindu Muslim thing? Right. No, not at all. Well, not between he and I, but that yeah, was course, part of, of course, the issue of for, for some people in his family. Exactly. So he's not Hindu. He grew up Jain, but he, he doesn't follow religion. He's a scientist. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's not kind of in that realm of things and I'm agnostic. And so we don't have any issues with that, but yes, that was a problem from family members just thinking about, are you guys going to be able to get along? How are you going to raise kids? All that kind of stuff. And so what was really interesting to me is it was not just, you can experience discrimination from anywhere, right? It doesn't have to just be white versus non-white. I mean, it can be Indian versus Iranian. It can be Chinese versus Japanese. It's kind of mind boggling when you start thinking about these artificial walls that people put up for reasons to not get along. And that's part of the reason, honestly, that I don't have a religion and I am agnostic because I believe that a lot of religions end up putting up more walls between people versus bringing communities together. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm more or less an atheist for a lot of those same reasons. I do think religion has value as a propagator of culture in a good way, right? A hundred years from now, no one's going to remember Britney Spears or the Beatles. I mean, maybe the Beatles, but like, <laughs> but they will remember the stories of Muhammad and Buddha and Ganesh and Jesus will be told, right? Like, because it's like this kind of thing endemic to people's core and their culture. And it's kind of hard to experience things like even food or festivals, right? Without the religious connotations, right? People wouldn't carry it on. There are some beautiful non-religious cultural things, right? The moon festival in Chinese culture, but even that involves spirits and ancestors. So yeah. yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting in all of this too, is that I've been judged many times for religion, right? People assuming because I'm Middle Eastern, I'm Muslim, and then things like being a terrorist and all the, the whole host of things that can be associated with the religion or from where I'm from. But I'm actually racially, I'm white. So I don't know if, I mean, you guys yeah. may know that, you may not, right? But but I don't feel white and nobody looks at me as white. And so it's just, it's a really interesting place for a lot of Middle Eastern people to be, I think, is that racially we are considered white, but ethnically we're definitely minorities and people don't look at us as white and they don't treat us as white. So anyways, it's just building on the religious thing. There's just so many layers, right, to being a minority and how that plays out and how and how you're perceived. Thank you. I think we're ready now to move on to speed round. Are you ready for the speed round questions? Let's do it. All right. Here's the first one. What is something about you that nobody expects? That's such a good question. <laughs> this <laughs> one always takes everybody a long time. Yeah, <laughs> this is not really a quick answer. Yeah, most people don't know that I'm Canadian, but I think probably something that surprises people about me is that I'm a pretty good listener. So I think since I'm so extroverted and I'm a speaker, I'm so very outgoing, but I'm also going back to the empathy thing. I really like to sit back and listen. Of all the places you've been, What's one place you would want to go back to and spend a lot more time? Uruguay. Why? That was one of the places I went when I was backpacking that surprised me in terms of its sense of community. When I was backpacking, I was staying in hostels. And so 
you meet lots of people. And that was one of the places where it had the South American hospitality and a lot of people from South America staying at the hostel and just we'd make dinners together and go sightseeing together. And it was just an amazing experience. Yeah. Where were you? Montevideo or Colonia or whereabouts? Punta del Este. Okay. Legit Uruguay. Yeah. (laughs) On the beach. I did a day in Colonia, so, (laughs) but it hit the spreadsheet. (laughs) What is your favorite mom dish? A dish called Fesinjun. So it's a Persian dish that is made with chicken, pomegranate sauce, and walnuts. So it's sweet and sour-ish at the same time. You guys rock. really good. It is so good. Iranians rock the cooking with pomegranates. Like we have a thing of pomegranate sauce that we bought from an Iranian grocery store down the street, and it is one of our go-to condiments. (laughs) It's so good. I'm telling you, Fesinjun is life-changing. If you haven't tried it, find a Persian restaurant and give it a try. What's your least favorite food? Ooh, just anything like that's spicy, to be honest. I just can't handle (gasps) spice. (laughs) (laughs) This is why Indian people and Iranian people don't get along. She's about to marry one. She's about to marry one, though. (laughs) Yeah, I've been I've been trying and I really can't. I just can't handle it. Wow. In my mind, I would think that Persian food is spicy too, but I Not guess at all. No, no, it's more. Sharon, that's so racist. Flavory. That's so racist. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking about. It's very flavorful. I guess when you know, when I think spice, I, I think flavorful. But yeah, yes. it's not spicy. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's not hot spicy. You're right. Exactly. It's very much. I tell people sweet and sour flavors. Yeah. So like we have a yeah. lot of stuff with lemon and lime, or we'll have a lot of stuff that's with raisins and more on the sweet side, but not hot spicy. Right. Who is someone that you would want to interview on a podcast? I would love to interview, if he was still alive, the author of The Alchemist. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. I feel like... Yeah. You're no, the third no, or fourth person to mention. We need an book. alchemist we need an alchemist punch card or we just need to read this book. <laughs> we <shit>. do. <laughs> well, oh, I've read it. You're you're alive. the one that hasn't read it, Remen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so Thanks the author that. was Paulo Coelho and yeah. Yeah. The book is just, I remember my dad had read it and he gave it to me in high school. And it's still, I mean, we're talking over 20 years later, is still one of my favorite books because it just is so good about this idea of taking this journey, looking for worldly goods, turning that into a discovery of the self. And actually, this is a great question you guys asked me. I wonder if he's still alive. He might still be alive. So maybe I can still interview him. <laughs> maybe I need to put think- that on my bucket list. <laughs> is he alive? I he probably, you know, I've got to look that up. I'm not even sure. I feel I'm like I feel like he could be, but he's probably I'm committed in his later to reading years. This. You I'm have to read it. Every, yeah, I, I'm going to buy it for you. Another, and before another guest brings, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm just going to have it. Do you like hard books or do you like audiobooks or ebooks? Yeah, hard books. If I'm, yeah, don't, we'll talk off. No, yeah. I'm going to ship you one. I really am. And then you could talk about it on our next episode. All right. Last question, Ida. Are you ready? Yes. What does being a model minority mean for you? Well, that's a loaded question because this idea, we touched on it a little bit about Uh minority and race and what the word minority really means. But for me, the idea of minority is simply less than 50% of the whole. And so I always try to be that voice, whether we're talking about a racial minority or ethnic minority or, or any type of minority that can stand up and lead when other people can't or when other people don't feel like they have a voice. So that's always been very important to me. Sometimes it gets me in trouble, (laughs) but it's really a guiding force for me that I do feel like I have a voice. I feel like I can use that voice. And so that's how I kind of think about how 
I can use my life as a minority to hopefully help other people. Well, that's some really great perspective. Ida, thank you for just taking the time and being really honest and getting into it with us. Thank you. Yeah, we went down a lot of curves there that I didn't expect, (laughs) (laughs) but it was fun. And I appreciate you guys rolling with me on them. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. How do you get that balance between giving your kids the life you want to give them because you've got enough to give them the best possible life, but at the same time, get them to understand the value. My kids have loads of soccer jerseys, right? When I was 15 years old when I got my first one and I didn't get the one I wanted. I got the second version, but nevertheless, I wore it every day for like a week. Like I really, really understood the value. This is why I think it's hilarious that we grew up in different countries. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.